When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is a crowd podcast. We didn't start the fire. The only podcast started by me, Billy Joel. Hemingway. Eichmann. Stranger in a strange land. Dylan. Berlin. And the wall. Don't forget the wall. Once of all. Hello again, and welcome to episode 86 of We Didn't Start the Fire, the history podcast that cracks open Billy Joel's rock'em, sock'em, action-packed hit song for the most surprising stories of the late 20th century. I'm Katie Puckrick. I am Tom Fordyce. Tom, how the heck did we get to where we are today? Billy thinks it might have something to do with Berlin. Ah, and when he says Berlin, Katie, he's not talking about the airlift of 1948 that your father took part in. He He is not talking about that, nor is he talking about the techno discos that (laughs) the young Berliners currently enjoy. No, he is talking about the era during which the wall separating East Berlin and West Berlin went up. And in fact, Berlin at the time, in the early 60s, was uh, a little bit of a Western oasis in the encroaching communist domination. Khrushchev was thinking he wouldn't mind having a little bit of a buffer between the West and their capitalist ways. And uh, I feel like the East German government felt the same way. It seems that way, Katie. Now, there are different ways that we cover topics on We Didn't Start the Fire. Sometimes we will have a learned academic giving us all the background details. But today we are doing something rather special because obviously one of the great results of the Berlin Wall was the escapes that people had to try and make around through under the Berlin Wall. I mean, that Berlin Wall went up like overnight. If you went out on the lash... To, to get the drinks in, maybe you can get back home to your family. And that was it. That was it. So that we have three guests today, Katie. It's a story that you and I are really excited to hear. So I'm going to say welcome to Wolfgang Muller, to Jane Muller-Peterson and to Ned Morse. Thanks for joining us, first of all. It's our pleasure. Thank you. So let's begin with you, Wolfgang. Tell us where you were when the wall first went up. I was um, on a class trip. Now, it didn't go quite the way uh, we uh, thought it would go, because uh, very early in the morning, the wall was starting to be built. So our teacher thought, well, it's better that if, if, if we just went home, and uh, uh, my father was not at home. And so I met my mother on that day, and she said, you know, Wolfgang, uh, your father is... Uh, as a member of the Kampfgruppe, Kampfgruppe is something like a communist militia. My mother said, well, he's very close to the border and we don't really know where, she, where he is. So tomorrow morning uh, we are going to uh, the border and see if we can find your father. What was the feeling with you and your family and your friends? Because there must have been a certain amount of stability. I mean, I know 
post-war. It was a tense time, and Berlin itself was a divided city, and East and West Germany country divided. But with the wall going up suddenly, it must have really ratcheted up tensions and anxieties for you. Do you remember what the feeling was, a sense of uncertainty? Well, uh, the uh, starting with my classmates and their friends from other countries, they, they were totally upset. We didn't think this could ever happen because Berlin is Berlin. And But uh, in uh, certain family things, like uh, my father, who was supposed to protect the border from the east side, he, uh, he was told that he couldn't uh, go anymore to the west, which meant he couldn't see his sister anymore, he couldn't see his uh, mother anymore, and uh, other family members who were in the west. We all of a sudden had trouble uh, getting into AFN Berlin, which was the American uh, radio station, and we always listened to the radio station, the American radio station. And we were very used to uh, country and western music. On the day that we went back to school, uh, we had to uh, say we will not listen to any western radio station. But we had a wonderful teacher, and uh, he said, uh, you know, you students, you, you, you decide what you want to do. I myself will keep listening to Western radio stations. Uh, he almost was punished by his colleagues, but uh, in the end, they let him do whatever he wanted to. It's interesting that the, is, that the communists seemed like uh, so nervous about the ideology, like it was so flimsy. It was almost like they're admitting that uh, kids would be turned to the evil capitalistic ways just by listening to a pop song. The one thing that was the nuance of the uh, building the wall was that uh, all of a sudden we were able to buy uh, Levi's uh, blue jeans. In other words, they, they tried to be a little bit more... Uh, what generous. Yeah, more <laughs> generous, so that we wouldn't be too uh, crazy going. Isn't that interesting? So they thought they'd throw the dog a bone, let's cut you some slack. The other thing that happened was um, people my age and a little bit older found uh, basements in some houses where they played their own thing, I mean, Western music. Nobody could get into our basement. They, they didn't catch us. And, and, and the other thing is, uh, the people who could catch us, uh, except maybe for uh, state security, but police, they were not much older than we were. And you know, I, I remember when I served uh, the P National People's Army, uh, all the uh, non-commissioned officers uh, on Saturday cut themselves into a room and uh, they were listening to Radio Bremen and they all had the Western music. Let's talk about the f actual physical makeup of the wall. So the wall went up overnight and it literally not only cut through neighborhoods, cut through streets, but didn't it cut through buildings itself? Yes, it did. And... Um, there were various streets which were uh, cut into half, one west, one east. We could even see uh, some people, particularly older people, uh, sort of try to jump out of the window uh, in the east, and then they were in the west. 
and there were people in the West who would catch them uh, with material that they could fall into. Like they'd lay down hurt. mattresses. And yeah, things. for instance, yes. These people who uh, jumped out of the windows uh, were, of course, totally upset because all of us lost our relatives for a while, at least for a year. And then at, uh, after a year or so, the, the Westerners could apply for a visa to the East and they could come over for a day or two. And it's also important to stress that the walls were patrolled by armed guards, so people could, okay, break a hip if they jumped over the wall, but they could also lose their life. Okay, so it feels like we have the first part of our jigsaw puzzle in place. Jane, for you, you grew up in Iowa. How did you come to find yourself in Berlin at the same time? Well, I went to Belgium to study, and my sister had been in Berlin. She had met a seminary student through the head of her college. She wanted me to meet him and the other East German students. Tell us about this first meeting then, Jane, because I've seen some photos, and if you were to ask me to define love at first sight, I would say these first pictures of you and Wolfgang together. Oh, Wow. It was difficult and uh, wonderful at the same time. The First of all, uh, since you can't see her, you don't know that she has wonderful brown eyes. I thought this was wonderful. The, the best song that I could play, I couldn't play very, very well guitar, but I, uh, I could play The House of the Rising Sun. I think that won her heart, I, I hope. Along with your Plattdeutsch song. Oh, yeah. Which yeah. I couldn't understand a word of. When we met, I didn't, didn't know any German. Um, <clears throat> so we were speaking through my sister interpreting. Yeah, which was... Uh, it was purely hormonal. <laughs> uh, and uh, the only thing I had uh, was an English uh, textbook. Through that textbook, I learned about the English working class and how they protested in the streets and, uh, you know, this kind of political thing. But uh, it's very hard to have a date and then only have the vocab because you could only talk politics. Wolfgang, what was your first reaction when you saw Jane across the room? <laughs> well, uh, I either fainted uh, or I, I, I just thought, well, that's, that's she. At the same time, the, uh, the wonderfulness was, of course, well, how do I get her back? Because now she's in the East with a passport, and then she has to go back uh, after 24 hours, and then how do I get her back? Yeah, and at that time, uh, to enter, first of all, to get to West Berlin, which is in the middle of East Germany, mm -hmm. and so West Berlin is surrounded by East Germany and Part of that is East Berlin, but the rest of it is just East Germany. So you go in on these transit roads, and it was totally frightening to me, and it almost made me nauseous to see the degree of control that they did as we came into West Berlin. They'd look under the cars, and they uh, they wanted to make sure that no East German had gotten in by way of that transit road. These roads were heavily guarded, and they were just a strip through the German Democratic Republic that took you into Berlin. And then from there, you had to go again through many more controls. And when you hit the border right in Berlin, the divided Berlin, 
you had to change money and get scrutinized and have your bags looked at. So by the time I met Wolfgang, I was already like, I was very emotional and I I felt almost yeah. uh, nauseous from the stress of seeing that much, that many guards, that much security, that much repression, and just having experienced it that first day. And then to see these like secret kind of gatherings that would go on, even on the way to that place, though, I remember seeing a guard with a German shepherd standing there and looking really scary. I thought the whole thing was really scary. It was night when we went over, so it was all in the dark, and it was kind of spooky. And then we got in there, and they were playing, uh, well, not only playing their guitars, but they had like a tape that had, back in the USSR, I thought that was good, they had other Beatles songs. <laughs> the Beatles song. Yeah, yeah, back in the USSR, and then they'd get like totally into it and be rocking to it. And of course, he comes in the door with this like, corduroy jacket uh, kind of with no collar <laughs> and a, carrying this guitar case and looking really good yeah <laughs> oh my gosh and Jane all of your nerves were just kind of raw and mm-hmm. the sensations were completely heightened because you'd been on high alert coming in and you know being scrutinized by guards and then you meet Mr. Dishy yeah. Mr. Dream Come True <laughs> oh, no. you must have been so excited <laughs> it was a very emotional time I was like very worked up about the whole thing so emotional having seen how secure these this border was and at that time it wasn't as secure as it got later but it was still very secure and later it was like called the most secure border in the world after they had automatic shooting devices on it and even when I went they already had from the original wall where they had put barbed wire up, they had created uh, a lot large empty space and another wall. And to do that, they had to like tear down all the houses in that space. So it would be like wider than a street would be, much wider. The no man's land or the death zone, I guess they would call it, where it would be easy to spot anybody trying to get out and they could be shot because they'd have to get over one wall and then they'd have to get across this barren strip and then they'd have to get across the next wall. So I had observed all that on the way in and all these guard towers and later I had read that they had 14,000 German soldiers guarding uh, the border between east and west, not all in Berlin of course, but uh, the whole border area. It was an immense effort of security to keep people in there. And so there I meet my true love, and he can't get out. <laughs> this is an advertisement from BetterHelp Therapy Online. Hello, Fire listeners. It's Tom here. I hope you're enjoying the series. I wanted to tell you about BetterHelp. We all carry around different stresses in life, big and small. A lot of the people we talk about in this series definitely did. And as we know, if we keep those stresses bottled up, it can impact us negatively. That's where therapy can be great. Therapy isn't just for people who've experienced major trauma. It can help you understand the way that your brain works and why you feel a particular way. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's all online, designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. All you need to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a registered therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. 
With over 1,000 therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Fire listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com WDSTF, as in, we didn't start the fire. So, that is betterhelp.com WDSTF. Eat stress-free this spring with Factors' delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Always fresh and never frozen, each meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. I eat flexitarian, so with a weekly menu of 35 options, there's plenty for me to choose from. So, last night I had the Moroccan-style almond-crusted salmon. It was absolutely delicious. These are no-fuss, no-mess meals. Factor eliminates the hassle of prepping, cooking or cleaning up. Simply heat and savour the good stuff. With over 60 add-ons like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks and smoothies, there's plenty of options to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. Plus, you can customise your weekly meals and pause or reschedule deliveries to suit your lifestyle. Factor is your solution for fast premium meals without the need for cooking. What are you waiting for? Head to factormeals.com slash WDSTF50 and use the code WDSTF50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code WDSTF50 at factormeals.com slash WDSTF50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Okay, so we have Wolfgang and Jane in love but unable to be together for more than 24 hours and so you too hatch a plan to escape. Well, this came four years later, that plan to escape. First, I went to live in East Germany. I worked for about four years uh, in various capacities in in East Germany while we thought about, should we stay together? Should we try to risk this? I mean, we had to be sure to undertake something so so risky. Like of the people we know, a couple other people who tried it and they they did end up in jails. First, I wanted to just experience East Berlin and get to know the situation better. So I had an opportunity to teach in the, I thought, in the English department, but then I flunked their political test so I didn't get that job because they asked me who the head of the American Communist Party was, and I didn't know. And any American I've told this story (laughs) to does not know. But Wolfgang told me that's a softball question. They asked you that because every East German child knows who the head of the American Communist Party is. How could you you possibly not know? We all know. (laughs) And so they were like in shock, and then they thought, well, we can't hire her. She's sure no communist. But Jane, Jane, didn't they think it was weird that an American was trying to stay in, in East Germany? I think they knew that I did it because I was in love with an East German. But I think they thought because I had fallen in love, I would try to uh, find a life and move to East Germany. And did it ever occur to you that you might try to do that? Or was it just obvious that you guys wanted to get the heck out? (laughs) Well, I don't think I uh, could ever have decided to live in East Germany. With that repression and that separation and not much mind control. I, I, I don't think I could have 
done it. Once we decided we would stay together, then it, we started working on how, how can we get him out. And I had a, a first failed escape in 1972, I think, when I had made a false American passport for him and gotten a Czech visa into it. And we had uh, a plan that he would go out of East Germany to Czechoslovakia where he could travel. We had been on that trip and then he would switch uh, identities uh, right at the border. Like in one suitcase he'd have some stuff and he had the other ID. I had a false passport for him and he would switch his passport and then he'd enter Czechoslovakia as an American instead of an East German. But we gave up on that and I started working with lawyers to negotiate him out legally after I I went home to work on this escape plan, various aspects of it, and I saw a newspaper article about some MIT students in the U.S. who had had a failed escape, and the woman who they were trying to get out was in jail. So I visited them, and they said, yeah, don't do that. Don't do that passport thing. Uh, <laughs> go to this lawyer, and he'll negotiate for you. The West German government at that time was <clears throat> buying people. They were like giving the East Germans a lot of money for each person that the East Germans allowed to come out legally. But at the time, the United States government had no relationship with East Germany. So uh, that seems to have been putting the brakes on my application. Because one time I went into the office and he said, your time has come. And I was so excited. Each time when I went to his office, it was like once a month, I would get the biggest headache ever. I would sit there waiting and get such a headache, so much pressure, because I thought maybe, maybe he'll, maybe he'll have something. And then he said, your time has come. I was so happy. And then he said, oh, you're American, not British? Oh, your time hasn't come. Oh, <laughs> no. So, oh, so I was just crushed. And um, after, oh, more than a year of this, of going to that office and getting my big headache and finding out there's nothing for me, uh, then we started getting serious about this military escape idea because you don't need a passport. And I, for it. I just want to interject. I'm I'm so impressed with how DIY you are with your planning. And I'm wondering if you had a background in maybe reading spy novels or you know what gave you your gumption and your grit in your determination to come up with these plans. My mom said I was always a very good sneak from the time I was small. <laughs> <laughs> That's how she explained it. <laughs> okay, so this feels like the point where we need to hear your story, Ned. How have you come to find yourself in Berlin? Uh, Tom, I was drafted in 1972. It was just the very end of the U.S. draft. Uh, Nixon was running for re-election, and he had uh, promised that no draftees would go to Vietnam. And uh, I was opposed to Vietnam, but not the military, so I was drafted and went to Berlin. There's a, a story of the escape uh, that is, uh, is the subject of a feature film. Uh, it's currently in development. It happens to be written by my daughter. The focus of this whole thing, you know, Wolfgang's a great guy. He really was a hunk back in those days. He still is. You know, I was <laughs> this, this little guy who played a, a bit part in this, but this is truly a story about Jane. A fearless woman who was just determined, and having known the two of them as thoroughly as I do now, part of it was love, but part of it motivated Jane and motivated myself as well. We were going to get back at a regime that was just stamping on human dignity, 
on human liberty, on the ability to talk, the ability to get together. They haven't talked about the fear that was there. If somebody said the wrong thing, they would be yanked off to jail. And the German prison was no picnic whatsoever. So I understand that Wolfgang was drafted. What was going on there? What uh, what happened is um, in the middle of the night, somebody knocked at uh, my door. I thought, oh, great. Jane has come back. Wonderful. And it's only a little bit after 12, so we still have time for the night. As it turns out, uh, the person who stood in front of my door was somebody like a mail carrier, but he looked uh, totally um, tired. I guess they had just drafted him that night. And then he said, well, when I give you these documents, you are uh, now a member of the National People's Army. One of the things that uh, we learned or we were taught is that uh, if you are a member of the National People's Army and you are in contact uh, with Westerners, uh, the best that could still happen to you is you go to jail. I thought, okay, I can't uh, call Jane. What I have to do is I have to uh, go over to a friend of mine, and he has he had a telephone, and uh, so I said, "Hey, Heinz, I you know I I I'm, I'm, I was just drafted." So he uh, he called Phoebe. Then somehow uh, got she in touch with Jane. She came over at six in the morning to tell me. Yeah, you, okay. you know now it's so easy with the cell phones. Our communications were so difficult. And your heart must have sunk, Jane. Yeah, and then I was really afraid because I didn't know whether they had found out that I had made this false passport and planned this other escape. I didn't know if I would be arrested on the spot if I did go over. Well, anyway, so I I went into this building. It was a school, by the way. Uh, The last uh, place where you had to check in uh, was the uh, doctor. The doctor asked me, well, uh, do you have any disease? And I thought a little bit about it. And then I said, yeah, I actually do. I have a terrible diarrhea. And then, then he looked at me, and he looked at the nurse next to him. And uh, then he said aloud, well, we cannot uh, draft this uh, young man you cannot win a war when the whole battalion uh, has diarrhea. And I thought, wow. (laughs) (laughs) That uh, thing helped immensely in this country here. Well, no, no, it's it's just uh, when the police was behind me and I was too fast (laughs) and they stopped me and I said, well, I had to go so fast because I had to find a bathroom. So I, I'm so impressed with uh, how intrepid Jane is and how you think on your feet as well. And obviously, that's what you needed to live in Germany at this time, that kind of survival instinct. So let's get into the actual escape. Well, it started when uh, Jane walked in my office in the uh, Army headquarters. She was referred to me by a guy who'd sold me my VW bus when I first got there. He had been in the Army. He was a Fulbright scholar studying in Berlin. And Jane and her friends had asked, does anybody know anybody in the military? We want to have use a kind of a military loophole to bring Wolfgang out. Steve, the fellow who had sold me the bus, said, I do. Brought Jane in. They told me the story. And I said, I'm up for it. Let's, let's make this happen. 
And a part of it was I, I'm crazy enough to just uh, enjoy adventure. But the bigger part is what I said before. It was just wrong that they were separating families, that people had no freedom. And if you think of the era that you know Jane Wolfgang and I were raised in, it was the 60s. It was all the folk songs about blowing in the wind and you know freedom and the freedom marches. This is something that was just being squashed in Berlin. And I was outraged. That was, the, I think, the biggest thing that was moving me forward. Uh, so uh, we uh, got together. Jane was very far advanced with her plan. I didn't come up with the plan. She did. What they needed was somebody to go into the East and then bring Wolfgang almost all the way out. At that time, Jane mentioned that the U.S. did not recognize East Germany. It was the Soviet zone of occupation in the city. And as such, if I wanted, as a U.S. military, to go into the East Berlin, I could. But I had to wear my uniform. I had to go in and come out in the same way. So if I walked over, I had to walk back. If I took a scooter over, I had to take a scooter over. But the East Germans really controlled Checkpoint Charlie. And what uh, Jane and her colleagues had discovered was the East Germans, who the American military had no real contact with, would take a Polaroid picture okay, of somebody walking in in a uniform, and then they would take uh, uh, that picture as somebody was coming back out, and they would just do a, a facial recognition. We played on that. And Jane said, hey, we need to find a lookalike, somebody that looks like Wolfgang. I was able to find somebody who looked a lot like Wolfgang, as it turned out, and he was very willing to go along with this thing. So the basic plan, Wolfgang uh, gets a complete uniform smuggled in by Jane, at great risk to herself, by the way. Mm, the hardest part was to get the uniform jacket. So my friend and I, she was a friend from my hometown from childhood, actually. She had found out I was in Berlin at a high school reunion, and then she came over there to live, and she actually still lives there today. But she was my accomplice in all of these escapades of trying to get the uniform parts, like uh, off soldiers. We'd go to restaurants and get different uniform parts different times but getting the uniform jacket was the very hardest thing so we went to a dance place it's called the club 60 we're just going to walk right in and pretend we belong there of course we get to the door there are two soldiers guarding the door and we just freeze and they said it's okay girls can go in so we've get the guy who's just the right size. You know, in the course of the evening, we tell them what we want. Turns out he was in a military unit, just tourists, tourists in Berlin, and they didn't know Berlin well. So we went, uh, he said, yeah, sure, we'll get you a jacket. Sure, we have to find our barracks and we'll go get the uniform jacket for you. And we gave them money for it. There had been reports about my activities in these bars and restaurants that there's some American trying to involve uh, soldiers in an escape effort. Like this had been reported. But anyway, so I, I'm thinking, oh my God, I could be being watched. And then I get this uniform and I have to try to hide it. So we go home and then I sew it between the inner lining and the outside layer of my coat. I took my whole lining apart, like the sleeves and everything, ripped them out. And then I put the lining of the coat into the uniform and then sewed everything together so that if I took off my coat, you wouldn't see the uniform. When I got to the border, one of the medallions fell off and there was this big clank. And I'm looking down and the guards are right there and there's this medallion right there. And I'm kind of sidestepping over it, thinking, oh my God, this could be the end. Somebody finds this, I'm done. They didn't catch me. And I, I, 
I pretended to be going to a party. So I had uh, chocolates and flowers in my hand and uh, thinking I would look much less suspicious that way. And I got the uniform. I got the uniform to Wolfgang's apartment. And then the time comes where we have the decoy. His name was Mike. He's the only person in this whole saga, by the way. We we don't know who he is or where he is today. So if he should hear this, please get in touch with us because we want to complete the people that are involved with this. And uh, his, his wife worked with me in my office. And we had Mike go in, dressed in his uniform. We uh, had Wolfgang uh, go, and he uh, had the uniform, and we'll talk about how he changed. Wolfgang and I met at the base of the Pergamon Museum, which is a huge, huge, massive room inside the, the museum in East Berlin. And I was at one end of the room. He walked in the other in his military uniform that Jane smuggled in. And Katie, Tom, I swore it was the decoy who had walked in. <laughs> we nailed it that closely. I, I was worried the decoy was there, what's going on. Mind you, I had never met Wolfgang, never had met Wolfgang. I didn't know if I was being set up. So the big uh, arrangement was Wolfgang and I will drive around in that VW bus, this fellow Steve had told me, and I wanted to convince myself that he was real, that this was the right thing to do. I was not being set up. At the appointed time to meet Ned, Wolfgang, you had to change out of your civilian clothes into your American military uniform. And that was quite a frantic event because uh, you were going to change in a bathroom, but there were people there. And so you had to look for a place to change. So, so what was going on? Can you talk us through that? What I thought was uh, you change your clothing uh, under the bridge of a uh, of the Espan. So it was I, like a tunnel. It was like a pedestrian tunnel. Yeah, and I thought that I would go in uh, as a civilian and I come out on the other side as a soldier. But when I came to that bridge, there were about three or four uh, teenagers playing something. And it was shortly before four, and so I tried to go very fast to the Pergamon Museum. And as I went in, uh, I saw Ned uh, listening to some speaker that explained some uh, Greek myth or something. I I don't know what it was. Anyway, and then I thought, well, where can you change? The The only place where I could do it is go to the bathroom. But then I noticed that the the queue was very long. And they would have seen me going Go in, in as one and, and coming out as the other. Turns out it was the only bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> because the other was, there was a big uh, sign saying, it's out of order. <laughs> and so then I ran around the Pergamon Museum. And then all of a sudden I came to a uh, staircase and it went like in a circle. And I decided that if you're halfway down, then nobody can see you. And uh, then I thought, okay, now you you have to do something. So I tore my uh, uh, jacket. This stupid thing didn't work. I couldn't open it. I just ripped this apart. And I I, I usually don't have that much uh, biceps in my (laughs) arms. But but at that moment, I could do it. So uh, I went then upstairs. I had the uniform on. 
And then I said, oh, where's, where's Ned? And I think we had a password, and I've forgotten what it was. I think they said something about a VW bus, as I recall yeah. your password, was going to be a conversation about the VW bus. Right, I think so. I'm, I'm blown away by this idea that, Wolfgang, you're on this, it sounds like kind of a Guggenheim Museum spiral staircase doing a striptease <laughs> as you're running to, to the person who's going to rescue you, take you to the, the next part of your life. I mean, what an incredible transformation. And if you'd missed the window, I was walking away. He could have been apprehended. I could have been set up. Who knows? Yeah. yeah. So really, time was uh, really important. This is a museum filled with Greek temples and famous walls and mosaics. It's just huge with huge statues. So Wolfgang running around in this museum. <laughs> this is such an extraordinary story. Wolfgang, um, I want to know how you're feeling. You're in the uniform. You think this could be the day that you escape. How are your nerves? How's that diarrhea? <laughs> <laughs> well, that uh, that was a, a different story at a different time. But um, well, it it was hard on me because uh, when when you leave uh, your country, uh, particularly under these circumstances, uh, you first of all you lose your parents, you lose your friends. My only protector uh, for this round with the VW bus was Ned. Ned, to my shock. The first thing he wanted to do was go to the Russian PX. And I thought, please, Ned, don't, don't do that. And why did he want to go to the PX? He wanted to go shopping. Ned, why, why did you want to go to the PX? Uh, I'm not totally sure. Uh, I think part <laughs> of it was when you're in the East, you could go there and you could get very cool things from the Russian side, such as belt buckles or hats. And they were kind of neat to send back to people in the States. And you could get Ned, them when you went you did not have points. your eye on the prize. You didn't have your eye on the prize here. You're, you're like shopping. You, you know, this is a guy's life and love hanging in the balance. And you're like, I would like a furry Russian hat and a Lenin belt buckle. At this point, he was the hero of the whole thing. So of course he was. There is a more serious side to it, which remember, I didn't know Wolfgang at all. Secondly, I did know that the Americans were very often, uh, military were very often tailed. So I wanted it to appear very comfortable, normal. And remember the facade oh, okay. that we were trying to create was I was in the Pergamon, a fellow GI was there. We talk, I have a bus, hey, let's ride together. And I wanted it to look very normal. And so a place that you often would go would be to the Russian PX. So I already had actually plenty of hats and all of that, but that's beside the point. <laughs> but the other thing that I did was we took pictures out in front of the Pergamon Museum. And there's one that is cherished by me and by, I get emotional, by Wolfgang too, where he's standing there with the Pergamon Museum behind him in his military uniform. And that picture is today in Checkpoint Charlie Museum, which actually is how my daughter connected this whole thing. She was there visiting with me. I hadn't told her much about the story. She came running to me inside the museum and said, Dad, Dad, there's the same picture here that you have down on your desk in the office. Wow. What's the story? And that began this whole thing uh, where it's now being put into a movie script and uh, you can go beyondthewallmovie.com and see what's going on. At any rate, we meet. Uh, Wolfgang was amazingly cool for all of the pressure that he was under. We get into the bus. We start talking. His English at that point was excellent. And we just found so many things in common. 
You know, Tom, it was the music that he uh, was talking about. Katie, it was the love that he had for Jane. Uh, we really both bonded on how uh, just uh, wrong from a human dignity and, and kind of the natural rights that we have as human beings, how wrong the East German government, the, the Soviet repression was. And we very quickly became very close friends. But the moment of truth came when we were at uh, the Brandenburg Gate. Now, mind you, the Brandenburg Gate has, you know, the quadriga looking one way. And it was the last time Wolfgang was going to see that from that side. And so we went there, we're taking pictures, and that's where he said, Ned, come back in the bus. And he said, the guard over there just looked at us through his binoculars and he talked into a microphone or a walkie-talkie, I think something's up. But what had in fact happened was that uh, against all the plans, the decoy had finally gotten bored with the bar that he had been in all day, <laughs> basically. And he got up to stretch his legs, go outside, and went to another bar. And whoever saw him on the street relayed to a central command, hey, you know, here's this PFC, five foot eight, whatever, five foot ten, you know, with a mustache, he's moving from here to there. And somebody else, the guy at the Brandenburg Gate, was calling in the exact same description. But there's only supposed to be one inside wow. East Berlin. They started putting these things together. Well, Wolfgang and I go to Checkpoint Charlie. And it's a zigzag sort of a deal where you go around, you know, they got all the blockades and barricades, so you just can't burst through. And remember the rule. If you walk in, you have to walk out. If you drive in, you have to drive out. Well, the decoy had walked in. So Wolfgang, in full sight of all the guards, we pull right up to the edge of this whole thing. He gets out of my bus. And he is walking in front of me through all these different checkpoints. Now, mind you, he's supposedly an American military. He doesn't have to speak to the Germans. He can't. He supposedly doesn't even speak German. And he goes, and I am right behind him, and they're checking me. Now, they're much more interested in my bus because I could secrete somebody inside and hide them and get them out. So I was a bit of a distraction factor. And it came down literally to seconds. As uh, he had gone through the final of the actual checkpoints, the fellow who was inside, now I'm, I'm there, they're putting the mirrors under my bus and everything else. The guy who was in charge smashes his face against the glass, a telephone to his ear, and he's looking at Wolfgang, who is walking towards the line. And the line is the demarcation between East and West. And I could just see that he was saying, what do I do? Do I shoot? And the guards are up in the towers. They could have easily gotten him. But as he's hesitating, Wolfgang's across the line. At that point, I am able to continue going through. And what I learned later was that we almost had an incident because uh, Wolfgang, of course, had never been through Checkpoint Charlie. He didn't know which way to go, which if he had come in, he would have. And one of the Germans spoke German to him to tell him how to go. And it could have been a mistake if he had responded or acknowledged, and he just caught himself in time. And he said, oh, what, 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 what? And the guy pointed, and then he went out. So we now get to the American side. There's also a checkpoint on the American side. We had arranged for the two guards that are normally there to be uh, off. Uh, it was going to happen later after the shift change, but as a good fortune, there's only one in the booth. Do I talk and check out this guy who's walking out by himself, or do I check out the guy in the VW bus? Obviously, they checked out the guy in the VW bus. Wolfgang and I met around the corner, 
I put him in the bus, and I took him to a subway station where he went to reconnect with with Jane. And I did not want Jane anywhere near Checkpoint Charlie. If things went south, I just didn't want her to be exposed to that. So she was waiting, as I remember it, on the platform, not sure what was happening. And all of a sudden, the train pulls in, and Wolfgang was there. He fell out of the car. Everybody cried. He did, yeah, yeah. yeah. His knees were so weak from all that had happened. And Ned, you, what was your feeling? You must have been so emotional. Oh, I still am. I still am. <laughs> you know, in, in, in rational hindsight, why the hell would we take such a risk? Yes. But I'm so glad that I did. So many moving parts oh. to this plan. Yeah. It could have gone wrong. I mean, it did sort of go wrong. And and Wolfgang, talk to us about what your feeling was when you first stepped foot on the western side. I, I will never forget. Of course not. And I repeated these words every day for the next two, three weeks. I'm out. They can't do anything against me anymore. I'm out, I'm out, I'm out. And I think I, I think I gave you a hug, although I shouldn't have. You did, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 should not have, I should not have done it because you were supposed to drive. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and so uh, I literally fell out of the bus and then we were all hugging and crying and laughing and uh, whatever it was. And then I don't know if you, uh, if it was you, Annette, but uh, somebody told me, Wolfgang, the good thing is uh, you don't have to pay anything for the subway because you have an American uniform on. <laughs> that was great because I didn't have any West money. <laughs> so then we went home and uh, Jane had baked a cake and um, that was wonderful. You got married. That's when we saw. I each got other. married. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I almost forgot. It was a very small and informal wedding, mostly with the people who had been involved in this escape in some way. Yeah. The fellow who sold the bus was there. Mike was there. I yeah, was there. Yeah, Susan, the one who was my accomplice in going to the bars. She'd been with me throughout the entire uh, for for a couple of years of working on this. Well, it's an extraordinary story. All three of you are heroes of the highest order. <laughs> thank you, Ned. Thank you, Jane. And thank you, Wolfgang, so much for coming on this podcast and sharing your incredible story. You know, and if Billy Joel had waited six to seven weeks upon releasing this song, that's when the wall came down. Yes. That's a great point, Ned. That would have been his first lyric of his next verse. <laughs> it absolutely would have. <laughs> Our lives were never the same after we learned our 21-year-old daughter, Kristen, was murdered by her ex-boyfriend. It's a parent's worst nightmare. How much did we really know about domestic violence back then? Clearly not enough. Now we know plenty. We know domestic violence, or DV, can happen to anyone. One in three women suffer physical violence at the hands of intimate partners during their lifetimes. One in three. I'm Bill Mitchell, host of the When Dating Hurts podcast, and my interviews with DV counselors, law enforcement, and especially actual DV survivors give the pandemic of domestic violence the attention it deserves. The When Dating Hurts podcast. It's a series of lives being saved. 
I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words, a podcast that presents the unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. As a country, we need these stories more than ever. Stories from Americans who have borne the battle, including 30-year-old remastered interviews with veterans from World War I recounting their time in the trenches of Europe, and with veterans from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and from our most recent conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other battlefields Americans may never have heard of. Hear their stories by listening to Warriors in Their Own Words wherever you find podcasts. Every aspect, Tom, of their story (laughs) is so cinematic, like just the kind of ramshackle, is it going to work? Are they going to be able to pull this off? I mean, it could have just fallen apart at every twist and turn. I mean, the uniform parts falling out at the checkpoint, Wolfgang getting changed as he's running up the spiral staircase to meet Ned. I mean, there's so many. I mean, I was just getting nervous. I was on the edge of my seat just hearing about it. We both knew, Katie, when we started chatting to them that it had a happy ending. But I had to keep reminding myself because I kept thinking it was going to go wrong. The bit where they just get the jacket off some random <laughs> some random GIs. soldiers yeah, yeah they meet in a bar it is so ramshackle but i think that is the charm of it and the charm and also but the danger of like a knock on the door it could be the stasi oh no it's their friend but maybe their friend is the stasi it's extraordinary isn't it and i was struck not only by the obvious love that wolfgang and jane had for each other yeah. and continue to have for each other but also ned Ned was risking everything for people he barely knew. I know, I know. I mean, pop music can save the day. Actions, individual actions can save the day. And everything is taking a stand against the man and against the bad guys. Doing your part. Yeah, doing your part. And there's someone else we need to thank as well, Katie. And Mm. that is a listener to the show called Kurt, who is in Cincinnati. And this episode really began with an email from Kurt. He wrote to us to say... Wolfgang Müller was one of my college professors and escaped from East Berlin. His story has been made into a short movie, and I think he would bring a great perspective to the podcast. Kurt, you were absolutely bang on the money. Thank you, Kurt. Thank you so much. Thank you. And yes, the short film, which may yet be turned into a feature-length Hollywood flick. So keep your eyes peeled for that. Well, if you would like another podcast to listen to as Hmm. you recover from this extraordinary episode, you really should check out .com, firstly because it's fantastic, secondly because it is a tech podcast hosted by... Katie Puckrick. Yes, it's hosted by Katie Puckrick. It lifts the veil on the internet. Series 3 is out now, and it's about the complex world of ransomware and cyber attacks, because in this brave new world, nothing is too small or too big to be digitalized, including acts of war. If you are listening to the news or aware or alive in the world, you might know that Russian ransomware attacks almost doubled last year. And at this very moment, cyber criminals are crippling schools, supermarkets, kindergartens, hospitals, oil pipelines. Nothing is off limits. I want to know who's behind this and why. Katie, I will cut to the chase. It is both fascinating and brilliantly done. (laughs) Thank you. If you would like to give it a listen, just search for .com, the hacking. That is... D-O-T-C-O-M. I would implore all of you listeners to be more like Kurt in Cincinnati. And if you have any guest ideas, you can contact us on email at fire at crowdnetwork.co.uk or on social media. We're at Spread That Fire on Instagram and Twitter. 
Where are we going next week, Katie? Next week, we're going to investigate the invasion of the Bay of Pigs. Ah, the U.S. against Cuba. Yeah, well, or the CIA against Castro. Interesting, Katie, interesting. Very interesting. Crowd Network. A place where you belong. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from. Around 10,000 BCE, families and tribes of the ancestors to the people of Britain would arrive in the southern part of the island after crossing from land that bridged from Europe. The Welsh built houses, communities, kingdoms, and continued to survive through Romans, Saxons, Danes, and Normans. The language and culture influenced by these sources continued to change and thrive, becoming ancient and modern at the same time. Join me as we travel through the history, meeting the kings, queens, nobles, and everyday people that create and grew modern Wales from the seeds of the ancient past. Creoso, and welcome to the Welsh History Podcast. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the allied powers go too far? in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon.